Welcome everyone to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. When I was growing up, and even when I got to my 30s, it was difficult for me to find people within this rainbow community who were in a long-lasting relationship. This could have been due to me only doing the bare minimum in being part of the greater rainbow community. I dip my toes in every once in a while. So perhaps I didn't do enough searching to find people who were committed to each other. It could also be due to the AIDS crisis that took place in the 80s and the 90s. Partners being separated, people having to change and to move on. It could also be due to the fact that when we are going through school, we never learn about how to have same-sex relationships. We don't learn that from our parents or the church. So we're learning this as we go along. It's something that we must listen and talk about. I would be great in a heterosexual relationship. I've learned about that all my life. But as a gay one, more than slightly unprepared. Now that I'm fully within this community, I see that the long-lasting relationships have been there all along, and now I'm privy to it. I look at former guests and really close friends of mine, Pam and Karen Hoffman, who've been together for well over 50 years. Other chosen family members who are close to me, who I've mentioned on this show before, Dwayne and Larry. I'm constantly learning about relationships through them. And that brings me to today's episode, where I wanted to highlight a long-term relationship within the gay community. A couple that has seen and done it all, and we can all learn simply by listening. Sure, this could be free psychiatry therapy help, perhaps, but it's listening and it's understanding because people go through the ups and downs, and we learn from that. Today's guests are Randall McDonald and Darcy Kayser. Randall and Darcy successfully ran their retail business, Call the Kettle Black, for 20 years, including five stores in Edmonton and Vancouver. They were very honored to have the store sign from the first location inducted into the Neon Sign Museum when they closed the business. Darcy himself has had an over 20-year career in retail with the before-named business, and his identity was ingrained in the business as he became the face of the company. There were kitchen stores, mini Williams Sonomas, as he referred to them as well. He followed trends. He loves cooking, traveling, obtains information about restaurants, and so much more. Now, Randall, his husband, enjoys working in all creative forms. Stage, film, television, radio, singing, writing, decorating. <sighs> and event planning. His older brother told his parents when he was only four years old to get that kid on the stage. And the rest is history. Randall has had many roles on stage and on screen. He's had a call for the stage for a long time. And he's answered that call many times over, including joining the Edmonton Opera for many productions, including South Pacific and La Boheme. Randall also writes articles for publications about living a lavish lifestyle, recapping some of his incredible five-star adventures around the world, such as attending 18th century mass balls at the world-famous Carnival in Venice and throwing decadent parties. He also contributes to the Edmonton Journal and Vitamin Daily. This year, the two of them will be celebrating their 30th anniversary. They had a commitment ceremony on their 10th anniversary and legally got married on their 15th. Or, as they like to say, they were committed on their 10th and institutionalized on their 15th. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, we talked to Randall and Darcy about their backgrounds, the good and the bad, and everything in between. Before I bring Randall and Darcy to your screen, and or your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our 2S LGBTQ Plus community. By listening to our stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection.
So let's continue to connect while being introduced to amazing people and topics. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another listening platform, and you've enjoyed the content of this episode, please check out our previous episodes. We've covered everything within our Rainbow community, and we're going to continue to do that in the future. Star ratings, reviews, word of mouth is excellent. And if you're watching us here on YouTube, be aware of our lighting. While you're being aware of our lighting, make sure that you press subscribe and you'll receive notification of upcoming episodes when they go live. The members of the Rainbow community are living remarkable lives and Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is here to bring their stories, which happens to be your stories, to everyone. I'm based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and it's important for me to say that as I like to acknowledge that I am living within Territory 6 and within the Métis Homelands and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4. This is a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who have come before and those who are with us today. I hope you continue to open yourself up to listen, to learn, and to understand like I am. I make this acknowledgement as my small part in building towards reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, my guests are Randall McDonald and Darcy Kayser. And it's now time for them to receive the Barbara Walters moments. Let's bring them up on your screen and or your video ears. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank hey, you. look at the lighting gets better when my hand goes up. <laughs> I need to like keep it here. <laughs> I went through this introduction for both of you, and we did laugh a little bit. Randall, you sent me yours, and there's a lot of accomplishments in there. And I know Darcy has as many accomplishments as well, but his bio was very small in comparison. So how have you been able to work with this relationship when you've got someone like Darcy who may be a little bit more quiet, a little bit more stoic? Or have I got Darcy totally confused and incorrect? No, you're absolutely spot on. Well, <laughs> I don't think I would say that, but I would say this. We were really fortunate from day one that our interests were so similar and so interlocked that, yes, we're in a relationship, but we're also great friends too. So we just have so many things in common and so many things we enjoy doing together that it's actually been really easy. I guess I'm just more extrovert. Yeah, and want to get things started and come up with the ideas, but Darcy's a very willing participant and playmate. And and I will say that when we met, uh, he was, and obviously he has a bigger personality than I do. He's, he's a big personality guy and not so much me. And so when we first met, I was attracted to that, but then for a very brief period of time, thought that I needed to be that person as well and quickly realized that I'm not that person and be that it worked. I don't think we would never would have lasted if I tried to become him because it just would never have worked. So, and having said that, it, it wasn't a choice I made. I just realized that, you know what, I'm going to be me. He's going to be him. I'm not going to try to compete with him. I'm there to support him and enjoy my life and his life together. And so that was a learning point fairly quickly into our relationship. Darce has a great analogy and that is, I'm the kite or the balloon flying around and he's on the ground with the string. And then when the time comes or the bright moments, okay, we'll just pull you down. We'll just ground you. We'll sell that's you enough. off and then we'll let you go off again. And that's the perfect analogy. This year, you're celebrating 30 years together. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. We were five when we met. Well, 10. Actually. Oh, 10. Okay. <laughs> at least 10. Yeah. Okay. At least 10. We're going to go with that anyway. Yes. So years. we're looking at 1992, 
what was life like for both of you before these forces came together to create this McDonald Kaiser union? So what was very interesting, you mentioned my brother who told my parents to get me up on the stage. Now, my brother's 13 years older than me, and he actually came out when I was a teenager. And it was really horrific. My parents are very religious. It was really awful. Anyway, so it really threw me into the closet. I knew who I was, but I was terrified. Plus I had the religious upbringing on top of it. I was just terrified. So when I turned 20, I did start dating men, but I was so quiet about it. So like private. And you mentioned earlier in your introduction about not really seeing the couples when you were coming up. And I think part of it was, there was an era where everybody was invisible. So at the clubs where the single people were, you know, to hook up, but once kind of you met someone, there was nowhere to go kind of as a couple, a gay couple per se, because you didn't want to be clubbing anymore. And then you just kind of vanished into the ether and kind of melded in. So for me, I had been dating. I'd just come out of a relationship of a year before. And kind of when I met Darcy, I was ready to date someone again. He was very, very, very coy. Played very hard to get. Yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> so my backstory, I was married many, many years ago in another life. Marriage obviously did not last. But even after that, I dated a little bit and never really, nothing really clicked, I suppose, with women. And I got a job downtown Edmonton in a wonderful menswear store, and which happened to be a store that Randall frequented quite frequently. And also at the store, I mean, it was kind of an exciting time for me too. It was working downtown at a fabulous menswear store, interesting staff, and there was a very flamboyant gay man work there that I'll never forget. And I started percolating that it was like, you know what? I think I realized who I probably am. And of course, once looking back, of course, I always knew that, but finally, it bubbled up to the top where I could finally admit it to myself and kind of go, okay, this is kind of a cool life downtown. Randall would come in. I had not been with another man. So he was paying attention to me and he was beautifully dressed and charming. And, and so I was honored, I suppose, that he was looking and paying attention to me, but kind of very coy, kind of petrified and, and not knowing what <laughs> I was supposed to do. And Chili Fani asked me to see a movie. It was a Merchant and Ivory film called Morris. Morris. And that was kind of our first date, if you will. And He shook my hand at the end of the date. I did. <laughs> Very proper. I thought he was straight. So I walked away going, well, he's obviously straight. Like, And I, I didn't think it was going to go any further than that, to be honest with you. And, and having said that, I was giddy with delight. I mean, I, I could barely contain myself, you know, shaking his hand and, <laughs> you know, clicking my heels as I left kind of thing. And, you know, it, we could go into great detail those yes. six months. If yes. You will, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a Hallmark movie. Yes, we did finally become a couple. Let's say. Yes. So when you were shopping at that store, were you shopping for anything else other than Darcy? <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. So I didn't realize this till later in our relationship. So I always thought it was so ironic that every time I went into the store, the manager Dean happened to be standing at the door. And I find out later it's because they could see me coming and they knew I was always a sale. So Dean would run to the door to greet me. So I actually didn't even know Darcy worked there because I only ever saw Dean. And then one day I remember I was going for a lovely dinner at the Carvery and uh, there was this rose silk blazer in the window and I thought, I need that for tonight. So I went in with my best friend, Shirley, and Dean didn't meet me at the door and Darcy helped me. And I was just like, okay, who, who are you? And that's piqued my interest. So then I kept going back, trying to circumvent Dean to then try and talk to Darcy. Which happened. Well, it did happen. Yeah. Right at the end, yes. Dean yeah. was. If Dean was there, he was a. a yeah, if Dean anyway. was there, I, I he was he was one of them like, no, I want to buy from Darcy. Yeah. So what was that moment then for you, Darcy, when you finally opened up and said, "This is who I am. I am this gay man, and I am in love. I am in love with this 
shopping connoisseur <laughs> and I want to take it from a client to a partnership. What was that moment like? Well, I don't really recall the exact moment, but that's exactly what happened. I almost instantly fell in love with the man. And it probably happened fairly quickly because I don't really recall how long I was working there. But I think after I made the move to work in this store downtown, I didn't date other men. I wasn't going to the clubs or anything like that. It was a realization that, you know what, I don't want to be with a woman. I'm supposed to be with a man. It was all timing, I suppose, too, is, is that it was like I came to that realization and then in the, walked in the door, and that was the man ultimately for me. And it was all very kind of exciting. And I mean, Randall at the time was living in a penthouse downtown. He was dating a doctor. However, I found out that they were not dating anymore. They had the condo together, but living separate lives. So he was kind of this larger-than-life personality that appeared to everybody who everybody knew everybody. So thinking that I want to find a, a man for a relationship, when he started kind of going, who are you? It was like, oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> be still my beating heart. And, and, and so I instantly just fell because I thought, wow, I'm, you know, lucky me, if you will. Like this yeah. amazing man seems to be interested in me. But at the same time, terrified of going, oh, you know, good night. Nice yeah. to meet you. Well, you know, and so I didn't know what, you know, I kept at one point I said to him, I, I expected you to make the first move. And I think, and, it, you know what, ultimately, I think I probably did, which was not my modem operandi. I was used to being chased. And all of a sudden, now I'm like chasing this guy, which was really pissing me off. But on our second date, which was actually a whole month later after our first date, he finally kisses me. And then halfway through the kiss, he pushes me away and goes, what do you want out of this? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you want out of this? And he's like, I don't want anything serious. I'm just looking to casually date, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that, that wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for a serious relationship. But I liked him so much, I thought, well, I'm going to date you for a month and then break up with you. That was my thing. And so day 30, my friend Shirley and I were working at the same office at the time. She runs into my office and goes, day 30, you have to break up with Darcy today. I'm like, geez, I'm not going to tell you anything anymore. And so a couple more weeks went by and, and I had some questions for Darcy. So again, it was a different time. And my three questions were, he wasn't out to anybody. And, and that was okay. I didn't expect him to run through the streets saying I'm gay, but it's weird if nobody knows that you're gay other than my friends. So that was one question. Could you ever see yourself coming out to people? Second question was, you said you didn't want anything serious. Has that changed? And the third question was, at some point, a year from now, two years from now, whatever, could you see us living together? And I had planned to have this discussion with him on a Friday night. And the Thursday night, we went to a fashion show. And as the lights are coming down, he turns to me, he goes, I came out to Dave today. So Dave at the time was his best friend. And I was just like, holy crap, there's question number one answered. And I remember him saying to me, what's the look for? And I'm like, I'll tell you later. And so after the show, we went back to my place and we had the discussion. And I said, you said you didn't want things serious. Has this changed? He goes, yeah, I was buying you Christmas presents the next week. And I was like, you kind of forgot to tell one person. You know, one person didn't know you were in a relationship. And then the rest after that was, was just... Having said that, he's absolutely right about all of that. <laughs> and I did say when we kissed and it was like, okay, I don't know. I don't want anything serious. I think that was just more of a defense mechanism. Think, you know, it's like, this. you're the first man I've ever been with. Okay, this is great. And I think it was... Even at that point, I was falling in love with him because he was kind and attentive and sweet and charming and all of those wonderful things. And so in the background, though, he was dating a number of other men at the same time. I wasn't in a serious relationship. I was just... <laughs> I did not know this. So I was spreading I, the love. He, I was, he was. But I, and of course, I didn't know any of that. And so I just thought he was just completely into me and I was into him. So I was... I didn't say anything. I suppose perhaps I should have. But I remember going, there's a store off White Avenue that I went and bought him a Christmas present two weeks later or a month later, whatever. And be able to tell him that I was looking for a serious relationship. But anyway, it did come up. Yeah. So oh. we're, we're not, we're still kind of on the fence. We're not sure if it's going to work out yet or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see and understand why there would be that hesitancy because here you are kissing a man for, I assume, the first time. And you're experiencing all of these emotions coming together at the same time. And it's like, whoa, hold on, what's going on here? 
what I knew from before is completely different than everything. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the one thing that I always say about when we then did get together and we started dating, I learned so much from Darcy, who was just newly out. And and he he was so comfortable with who he was. And it was freaking me out. I had always known that I was gay, but I wasn't as comfortable. I remember we went to a restaurant time and he reached out, you know, just put his hand on my leg. And I remember throwing it off. I'm like, oh, you can't put your hand on my leg in public, you know. And, but he was just so. I, I really was. I know when, when I met him, but after we started dating kind of seriously, I, t- went, I told my family, my dad, all my friends. And fortunately, I guess very fortunately, didn't really receive any negative feedback from anybody. So very lucky, but I was, it was, I, I was instantly comfortable, you know, not that we pranced down the street hand in hand, but I wasn't afraid to, in a restaurant under the table, of course, and, you know, not, you know, what to see, but I had no issues doing that. Yeah, he was very comfortable. Touching him. But you know. the one thing that was ironic when he came out to his friend, Dave, and it turned out six months later, Dave came out and he was in love with Darcy. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's all been very, you know, dramatic. We've been talking a little bit about Darcy and his background. I'm going to read something to everybody. And this is part of your bio, Randall. And oh. this is going to give people some perspective of where you are coming from. Yes, when you were born, you came out with jazz hands and glitter everywhere. <laughs> But there's more to it with your story because it's remarkable as well. And so I'm going to quote from your own bio here. This former fat boy's emotional journey recovering from his right-wing evangelical upbringing where not only was every aspect of life scary, but his church and home were basically conversion therapy for his gayness. With three evangelical ministers in his immediate family, He knew they would be non-supportive of the fact that he was gay. When his Southern Baptist ordained minister brother, as mentioned, older by 13 years, came out of the closet, this threw Randall deep into the closet when he saw his parents' reaction. Being taught that homosexuality was a choice, he decided to date girls and rein himself in. Though eventually settling down with his partner, He spent most of his life trying to be all things to all people, as the good book says. So, Randall, your upbringing in itself, it's a similar background to a lot of people I've talked to when it comes to religion. Tell us more about this. I actually, on the weekend, had somebody ask me, and they go, so when did you become you? And I said, you know what? It it's been a journey. It still is a journey. I said, it, for me, really, the big turning point was until 2009. You went 2009. And I was like, yeah, I had a lot of layers to peel off and a lot of things to work through. Our household was unbelievably strict. We couldn't go to movies. We couldn't watch TV. Well, we could watch old movies, drink, dance, smoke, went to church three times on Sunday, usually Wednesday night and often Friday night as well. I was fat. I was nerdy. I didn't have any friends. It was just a lot for me to kind of work through and then reconcile. And then when my brother came out, like I said, it was, it was horrible. It was, and it was, it terrified me. But what's really interesting is that I kept my parents very close to me when I started dating men, when I was trying, like very close to me. I did a lot with them. I socialized with them. They met my partners, my roommates. Gifts when you travel. Yeah. And I realized later on in life, it was that you keep your enemies close and it was so that they couldn't see. So they, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't see. And even when Darcy and I were together, I mean, we were, together 10 years before I actually came. I didn't come out to my parents till Darcy and I were together 10 years. I didn't actually say the words. And it was awful. And what I came to realize was, so for them, they had to have known. I mean, like they had to have known deep down, but because of their religion, 
they have to react when they hear the words. What I found disappointing was that, okay, so you're still going to keep on this same journey you did with your older son and how much damage that did to the family. Like your religion has you that brainwashed to think that this is the best route to go. But the one thing I am thankful for about my upbringing is that I could watch old movies. So 30s, 40s, 50s, because they weren't dirty. And I honestly believe that when I turned 18, I'd be going to supper clubs in Tales because Fred Astaire did. So why wouldn't I? And I specifically remember pulling out the yellow pages, looking for a supper club, and I found the silk hat mm. on Jasper Avenue. And the ad was the top hat and the cane and the gloves. And I'm like, oh, that's it. It's my supper club. And I was so disappointed to find out it was a diner <laughs> later. So I realized then that this glamorous life I grew up thinking I was going to lead, I'm going to have to create for myself. And I threw my first black tie party when I was 20. And I've never looked back. And that is my motto of life is I want my friends to come on this journey with me. I want people to experience the glamour that life has to offer and the fineness and the beauty of it and the fun. And life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death, as Auntie Mame says, my hero. So I am thankful for that. I am thankful for at least that that gave me my je ne sais quoi that I have towards life. And Darcy, did you have a religious upbringing? Not really. No, not at all. I mean, I went to Sunday school as a kid, but it was at the United Church. You know, my mother would drag us every Sunday, <laughs> kicking and screaming, but she did, bless yeah, her heart. Yeah. So I did have a, a somewhat, you know, spiritual upbringing, I suppose. But, you know, compared to Randall's family, our family, or the Waltons, we had a summer cottage at Sylvan Lake, and we spent our summers there in the sun and playing. And, and I have three older brothers, and it was not as turbulent, let's say, as Randall's was. So, we were the we were the wall nuts. I don't know. As exciting as Randall's growing up was, our mine was not. If you want to compare them that, way. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did. He didn't get a pony, so there is that trauma we're still dealing with. Well, he always says that. <laughs> I don't know. It'll always be there. This <laughs> pony appeared somewhere. And he never lets it go. He never got a pony. Never Poor pumpkin. Did. Well, you could have grown up on the farm where you raised your cattle for 4-H and then you named it and then have to sell the cow every year. Oh That's God. traumatizing. That's traumatizing. Cow. Yeah, no kidding. But I feel like it was almost raised on a farm. My parents have a lot in the city. That's three quarters of an acre. And my father's a very stereotypical Scottish man. All the lots were the same price. So you bought that one because it was the biggest one. But it also meant then that in addition to all the housework I had to do in the summer, I had to do all the yard work and gardening. So I didn't love summers, though I did love them that I didn't have to be at school. So it's a very conflicted feeling. Aren't you supposed to hire somebody and they'd be in denim short shorts or something like that? No, that's now. That's yeah. now. Yeah. Come yeah. Boy. Mom and dad's philosophy is the reason you have kids is to be their servants. Yeah, yeah we definitely were. Absolutely. <laughs> Just talking a little bit about the religious power, and I'm really curious about the brother. What did you learn from your brother that has that helped shield you or perhaps told you to go in a different route? What did you learn from him? Oh, that's such a good question. So in 1994, I think it was, I was still attending mom and dad's church with them. And there was a sermon on homosexuality. And I had been away that Sunday. I don't know why I didn't end up going to church. And I was like, oh, thank God I missed it. I don't have to you know, experience it. But it was such a hit with the congregation. They decided to do it again the following Sunday. And I happened to be there. And that, it really, really hit me. And I'm like, okay, I, I have to figure this out. Because being religious and a Christian was so ingrained in me and I'm gay. So I'm like, how do I reconcile those two? So I turned to my brother and he got his doctorate degree in ministries ordained, like I said, ordained Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember phoning him and saying, okay, Don, you have to do something with this. Like you have to reconcile it now because that just doesn't go away. It's so much a part of your being. And he was really a great source for me. And I remember he referred me to two books 
and I unfortunately do I donated them to the Pride Society. If anybody wants to go looking for them, mm -hmm. I can't think of the name of the books right now. But if you're out there and you're looking for help, please go to the Pride Center and ask for two book religious books on reconciling being gay and, and a Christian. And they were such good help to me because what I wasn't prepared to do was throw out the baby with the bathwater. Religion is important to me. I do have a very healthy perspective on it, though. It sent me on a good decade-long journey of what is the Bible exactly and, and what is Christianity as opposed to what Christians are. Like, Gandhi has a great saying. He says, I follow and believe the teachings of Christ, but I've never met a Christian I like. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Gandhi. And the biggest thing for me was I did a lot of studying about the Bible and its origins and how what we have today came to be. And the big thing that really struck me was that in order for the Bible to be the literal word of God, it would have to be penned by God. Well, we know it wasn't. So what is it then? then what it is, is the inspired word of God. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that whatever ends up on the paper has filtered through somebody's prejudices, agendas, time they're living, society, all sorts of things. Personal beliefs, yeah. So I, be I think it's a good guide. I just don't truly believe it's meant to be taken literally and I love throwing science on top of the Bible. And one of my favorite examples is this. So the Ark of the Covenant lived in the holies as they were going through the desert for the 40 years, wandering for the 40 years. And in that area, if you weren't fully forgiven of all your sins and you touched the Holy of Holies, you could die. So on top of it was a seraphim and cherubim with their wings facing each other. Ironically, this box is very much like the box that all pharaohs had in their tombs with the two dogs, Obis. Isis and Obis. Something like that. I said, black dogs. So what scientists have come to realize and have recreated is that these boxes were filled with sand and all this other stuff. And between the noses, it would create an electrical current. Mm. And I'm going, hmm, <laughs> isn't that interesting? And it doesn't diminish the story of Moses and all that. It doesn't diminish it. It just means we need to put things into perspective and also realize that nothing was penned for three or 400 years later. So we have an oral tradition and let's sit in a room and play telephone and see what happens just exactly. in the room. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm not a throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of person. We still go to church. We go to a Baptist church downtown that is very, what's the word? Liberal, oh, uh, yeah, like just open and friendly. Open and, they're gay, and there's yeah. seniors, there's children, there's the gay communities there. I think I call, would call myself more spiritual than a Christian because mm -hmm. I do believe there's more to our existence than just this. I, and I'm not saying heaven or hell per se, but I just believe there's more. There has to be more. I truly do believe that if there's a godlike figure that. She looks like Alanis Morissette. I do believe <laughs> that. And listeners of previous episodes know that I organized something in Edmonton called Pride Corner on White. And oh, we, yes. yeah, yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bravo, bravo. Yeah. And we combat the street preachers. And every week we get told that we're going to hell. And as I make mention to them, I look at what their heaven would be and realize I don't want to be there. Same and time. if I'm going to hell, I'm going to have Bette Midler, Cher, <laughs> Bette Midler, Gaga performance I go through there. Uh, so <laughs> I'm okay. I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And you know what? And thank you for organizing that corner. Like we, we do have to clean that up. Yeah. Well, stand up to the bullies. Absolutely. You know, and that's what it is. Like, and I keep saying to people and what I am a bit concerned about with, those coming behind us is that we have to be on guard for the rights that we've earned. Here's a perfect example, Roe versus Wade in the States. Like south, I, yeah. I thought that was a done deal that would never, ever be even talked about again. So it just goes to show that the government giveth, the government taketh away. Well, I think Ted, Ted Cruz mentioned that even today about how gay rights are 
on the table. Oh, the table. You know, so there you go. So my, so my thing is, I think, you know, what is unfortunate and the reason why we have to have pride is to remind everybody of how hard we fought and to keep um, up the fight, to keep up the fight. The other thing that was really interesting and a real learning for me is that my brother was in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. That's where he was living. And the stories and what they went through and how hard they fought and, 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 and he knew Harvey Milk very well and all that just like, I'm so proud of him and his partner at the time. And I'm so proud of what everybody did. However, I think people are becoming complacent and that it's taken for granted. And I just think we always have to be on guard to watch. Just going back to Pride Corner, though, but it's been designated as Pride Corner officially now, hasn't it? It has. Uh, In May, uh, it was proclaimed by Mayor Sohi. And this episode will air the week of your anniversary, but we're taping it here in July on a Tuesday. And I can tell you that three days from now in real life, the street signage created by the city of Edmonton will go up on that corner and it has rainbow flags on both sides of the markers. It says Pride Corner. There's a marker on top and it has the transgender and progress colors with a dancing figure in the middle. Other than a walking figure, it's a dancing figure. And I'll talk more about this as well, but in creating this with the city of Edmonton, I asked if our dancing figure has they, them pronouns and has the name Bailey. One of our people who always came to the corner last year, unfortunately made the decision to leave us in this world, but they were always there on the corner every week. So that dancing figure is going to be named Bailey after this individual who's no longer with us. And the city of Edmonton is going to recognize that as well. So it's Pride Corner, but it's also Bailey's Corner. And Bailey awesome. will forever be dancing. Uh, awesome. Wonderful legacy. Oh, we should all go down there when it's unveiled and drink Bailey's. <laughs> <laughs> do it. Let's do it. Well, and to go into that politics part, what's happening in the United States. We're based here in Canada, and we have to recognize that in our current federal government, there are approximately 115 to 120 conservative members. They did a free vote last year, and 82 of those conservative members voted to abolish abortion. So all they need is to get a majority. And again, here in Canada, that could be up for discussion again. So I agree with you. We have to be vigilant. And yes, we may be one note in our politics, but how can you vote for somebody who is going to take away body autonomy or rights for women, for LGBTQ plus? Politics is always part of it. And it's part of our 2S LGBTQ plus community. We have to be vigilant. Well, you know, I read this on Facebook a while ago and it did strike me and I don't know why it popped up, but it was something around voting. And it was like, if you vote for somebody who's prepared to take my rights away, then you don't support me. And so, you know, people always try and justify it by going, oh, but it's economy stuff or it's this kind of thing. It's like, okay, but still you're voting so that person can take my right, my hard earned rights away. Like. That, that's really stuck with me. And that's something that, you know, whenever we have that opportunity and that privilege to vote that I want to say to people, it's like, okay, be careful who you're voting for, because I want you to think of me when you're casting your ballot. I want you to think of me. Politics you know? frighten me. Yeah. So it's like, what would Jesus do? What would Randall do? <laughs> what would Barbara do? What would Babs do? The leader of our people. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're kind of getting away from your story here and we'll come back to your story, but capitalism is part of our economy. It's been firmly entrenched for a million thousand years. It's not going to change overnight because you decided to vote for basic human rights. The economy will continue on. Everything is entrenched, but my support, your love for me, that's forever. And we're at the point of our lives where we see you 
and yeah. we'll say goodbye as well because we've got our chosen families. Hey, that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> I, let's shift this a little bit because there's some people yeah. who are probably fired up in their cars listening right now. <laughs> uh -oh. oh, I love firing people up. <laughs> Gosh, the road rage. <laughs> Earlier on, when I was talking and introducing both of you, we mentioned your retail business, Call the Kettle Black. Over 20 years, including five stores in Edmonton and Vancouver. What was the genesis behind Call the Kettle Black? Well, good question. In the early 90s, well, after I met Randall, I was in the menswear business. And I just wanted to get out of that particular type of business, not necessarily retail, but, but the rag business. So I was looking at franchises, things like that. Coffee they, shops. Yeah, coffee shops, et cetera. And that a good friend of ours had a, a real estate agent who had, so it, it, there was a call that I called the Kettle Black on White Avenue, two locations in Edmonton. And the owner was looking at selling the one location, which I took over in High Street. So I, all I know is I like to cook. Had never run a kitchen store before, but kind of thought, well, that sounds fascinating and fun. So made an offer. I was successful. And that, I think, happened in September because it happened while we were away. But so mm -hmm. I took over, I'm going to say September 1st of 1992. 96. 94. 96. 96. I'm sorry. <laughs> we got together in 92. 96. 96. September 1st of 96. And within about a month or two, the, the previous owner closed the other location on White Avenue, which created some issues and difficulties. But anyway, whatever. But it was a learning curve, a huge learning curve for me. I had to make connections on how to buy product, learn about product. I mean, I had a very limited education on cookware, knives, electrical appliances, everything there is to you know, stock a store. He was the only employee. Well, I, yeah, for the most part, I had Seven a days a woman week. at some point yeah. that, that helped, of course, but just kind of worked at it. That was back in the mid-90s and later 90s. That, And it was a timing, too. I mean, I worked very hard, but at the time, there's a few things going for me as well. And one of the major things was the Food Network. And at that time, the Food Network was all about celebrity chefs and cooking on TV and Martha Stewart using all clad and these people are using Henkel and Wustoff. And also, Alberta was rolling, rolling, you know, with oil wealth. People were spending money like you wouldn't believe. So oh, when they saw Martha used a Silpath, they wanted to come in and they wanted the same thing that Martha was using. And they were $40 or $50, whatever they were. So things just went up, 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 up for years. At that point, there was the one store left. I expanded it in Edmonton. I want to say in about 2007 to Southwest Edmonton. And then 2009, an opportunity came up to buy three existing locations, kitchen stores in Vancouver, which we jumped at. Great locations in Vancouver, uh, but with the five stores in 2008, the economy started to turn. So was it the best of timing? Looking back, probably not. Things were going well in Edmonton. They're slowing in Edmonton, so it became a bit more of a struggle with the five stores. We lasted for a number of years, though, in Vancouver and realized that as things changed, demographics, people and cycles, you know, everything is a cycle. In Vancouver, they're struggling to just yeah. pay rent. But I made a choice during that time that maybe it was time to start closing stores as the leases came up. And at the time, I was hoping to just keep the high street store on 102nd Avenue. But of course, the bridge debacle happened, which kept that road closed for an extra year and a half. And it just became a finance thing. And I realized I just had to close it down. So I closed it down in 2016. But it was a great ride. It was great for us. It afforded us a wonderful lifestyle to be able to travel and travel well and experience a lot of different things around the world. We, we miss it every day. Yeah, and I still do miss it. So yeah. it's kind of nice to see that sign on the Neon Sign Museum downtown. 20 yeah, years yeah, running yeah. a business. That is remarkable because when you look at the restaurant business, 50% of those businesses go kaput within the first year or two. So for you to have 20 years five locations at the end, more or less, that's remarkable. So what was it about you? What was it about the store besides people liking the Food Network? But what was it that drew people to your store in particular? Think, you know, there were we certainly some competition in Edmonton, but again, I think part of it was that I followed trends of what was really happening in North America, Europe. I mean, we were able to go to Europe a few times for buying shows. And I kind of curated a store with not just good quality kitchen product, but interesting, and not a lot, but interesting, and I hate the word giftware, but unique gift items in the tabletop, tabletop, just 
the things you wouldn't find at certainly at the major department stores and or hopefully at many other retail uh, independent retailers too. So, and I think that became apparent after the first year or two that I had some neat stuff and it was whether it was a lessee or doing a toasters or just the price points were higher. And I think I had a bit of a reputation of being too expensive and that's fine. <laughs> but at the same time, it filled a niche. And if you wanted something for a number of years, I had some really cool shit to say our house was chock-a-block. <laughs> I'm going to take two of those, five of those, ooh, and one for us. And Caterers so, love so. working at our place. You're like, oh, look at all the tools in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, just for everybody. So when I say it was good to us, it was. Yes. I mean, we were, we were very fortunate. I loved it. I, I loved going to a gift show. And, it was so And fun. he would do that. And, and just to see the world at your feet, whether it was in Canada, the U.S., or in Europe, to see what was available. I mean, those shows were hard work. They yeah, were they were 12 hours. Like, if you don't like shopping... This was hell for you, but we like shopping. So it was a 12 hour day, four focused. days in the way focused. Okay. Cause you're spending a lot of money and this is your fall season. So this is where you're going to make you're your money. Of thousands of items. Thousands of items. And, but I loved it. It was exhausting, but awesome. So I think I had an eye. There's always a bit of luck involved with anything people do, but you know, I certainly had an eye and a love and a passion for it. I could talk about cookware and knives all day long, toasters or KitchenAid or whatever. That's stuff I love and still do. Well, in Edmonton by the hockey arena, there is the Neon Sign Museum where people can walk down and see the neon signs of yesteryear. And there is your sign. What does it feel like when you walk down there? It's always nostalgic. I mean, again, as I said to you too, that was my identity in Edmonton. I mean, we would be out and about and photographed. And so I became the store and the store became me. So, and... I liked it. That was just part of the business too. It's not that I craved that, but it just happened. I still miss the store. Do I miss retail? Yeah, probably not. But there was a sure a lot of stuff about it that I really, really liked. And so when I see the sign, I love it and I'm honored. And knowing that that'll be here, I'm sure after I'm gone. Well, it's know. it's it's leaving a legacy, yeah. A. And B, just in case people don't realize, it is the only outdoor neon sign museum in Canada. That's true. Oh. I, I did write an article about it for a magazine in Vancouver, just talking about that resurgent in the love of neon signs because Granville used to be neon sign central in Vancouver and then they tore them all down. And then I was able to talk about how, and God bless the city of Edmonton for doing it. They've taken this on, they maintain the signs they do with the plaque. So being able to leave a legacy means everything. Having said that, they've ripped down all the old buildings in Edmonton, but anyway, at least yeah. they've seen some, seen some of the signs. Yeah. But anyway, they've kept, they've kept the sign for the bathhouse. The sign. I love that. Good for that. Yeah, it's remarkable to walk by and go, it's the bathhouse sign. It's I know. Georgia Baths. Georgia Baths. I love it. Now, as people are listening here, at the beginning, we're like, ah, Randall's the very outgoing one with the jazz hands, and Darcy's more quiet. Randall, during this time, I would imagine, was not in a fetal position in the corner thinking about his religious background, waiting for Darcy to come home. That didn't happen at all. And Randall, you've had an amazing career on stage and film and music. And so let's make sure we talk about you here and not let Darcy have all the acclaim. <laughs> it's all about Randall. It's all about Randall. Uh, <laughs> you've had many roles on stage and on screen. What was it about the call for the stage that you obviously listened to? As I made mention in the introduction, you took part with Edmonton Opera in many different roles, including some stage premieres, some television. What is it about that line of work that just calls for you? I, I you know, I don't. It's it's something that you either have it within you and you love it and you need it or you don't like if it's not part of your personality it would be absolute hell for you and to be honest with you when mom and dad first threw me up on stage i hated it i would be sick to my stomach because i was so insecure about who i was because i was this chubby nerdy and then i get thrown on stage to sing it was terrifying and then for many years even when i would go on stage as an adult i would get so nervous i'm like why do i do this to myself i don't have to do it but there's something inside me that i just have to fulfill having said that i actually just closed a show on july 9th brigadoon and you know i have to tell you so i look at life as a tub 
So there's things in life that put water in your tub and there's things in life that take water out of your tub. And performing for me just totally pours water into my tub. It's where I go to draw on for when things aren't great and you have that high for weeks after. And I love making people laugh and I love making people happy. So the role I had in Brigadoon, for example, Jeff Douglas used a very comedic role and just being able to make 350 people laugh is such a great feeling. And I like that people walk out feeling happy and joyful and that I was able to entertain them. Mm. I also think that most entertainers come from a point of insecurity. I think there, there's that, I think if you lose that insecurity, that those butterflies, then your performances aren't great because there's no, there's no stakes. You have to have some stakes into it. Otherwise, if there's no stakes, then what do you get out of it other than some applause that may be meaningless because you don't have the stakes in it? Let's name drop some of the roles, some of the plays, some of the TV shows that you've been part of. Yeah. So I guess some of my prouder moments, Darcy actually said to me, he thinks that this last show I was in was probably the best show I've ever done. His so, role, he was amazing. The role was for a drunk, sarcastic American. He was spot on. He it's, called, it's called typecasting. Because <laughs> my mother's American, ironically, so I come by it. All kidding aside, it was yeah. a fabulous role. And as far as on screen stuff, I was very honored to be part of Tiny Plastic Man. And it won or was nominated for a million Canadian screen awards over its career or life. I auditioned and I got a very small part in one of the first seasons. And they just really liked me and they kept bringing me back and changing my character and, and playing different roles on it. So that was really awesome. I was in a movie film during the height of the pandemic, actually, in 2020. It's called Disguise. And it has played around the world. It won a million awards in New York and in India and the U.S. and L.A. And its awards are just absolutely amazing. So I'm very honored to have been part of that. Ironically... It has not played in Canada yet. I know. It played in India for two months, but not in Canada yet. So I actually just emailed the director today, kind of going, so when's it coming to Canada? So I'll be sure to let everyone know when it comes and we'll have a big red carpet thing. I was in, in the Edmonton Opera. I was cast in a role for the world premiere of Philomena, which is a story about the last <laughs> woman in Alberta who was hung. And I was just so honored to be part of that and to have a featured role and it was filmed for the CBC so it was broadcast across Canada and that was really a highlight for me too. Performing for me, I never chose to become a full-time or I chose to never become a full-time actor only because that's just only one part of me. I like to do so many things and performing really does take so much out of you not only time-wise but it's so all-consuming. Somebody said this to me in the performing world and I take it as a very high compliment. They said, you're such a multifaceted talent because I do so many different things. And I take that not likely the beautiful compliment, but I do like to focus. So now that show's done, I'm starting to shift to focus on other things, whether it's event planning or I do a lot of influencer work now with social media, which I really, really enjoy. You had some great roles though too, and like Titanic and Oh yeah. Ragtime and Guys Ti and Dolls. Titanic and the musical at the Wingspear with the Symphony. Yeah, that yeah. was great roles. I've been very fortunate. I did take a break from the stage for quite a while, but I was very happy to to get back on because there's I love film and television, but it's a very different medium. There's nothing like because the stakes are again much higher in front of a live audience. You're out there, you know it, you go blank, you gotta figure it out. And but also then that feedback you feed off each other and love each other for the evening. I started off this episode by mentioning relationships and we touched upon it a little bit earlier that we come from a generation where we didn't see ourselves in long-term committed relationships and we are writing those books, the playbook ourselves as we go through this. We wake up one day and we realize that we've been in a relationship for 10, 20, 30 years. I made mention of my close friends, Pam and Karen Hoffman, over 50 years with each other, yeah, you know, and, it, and they've got an amazing story, which people need to check out on three episodes because we could not fit their story. <laughs> and we could still talk more about the Pam and Karen Hoffman story. We've talked about 
Darcy's busy life with the store and the 20 years of blood, sweat, and tears put into it. Randall with stage and screen, plus the event planning, influencing. Relationship-wise, how have you been able to make it work when you have so many balls in the air? <laughs> That's a great question. Something made me realize or think to myself, I guess back in 1992, when we kind of began this journey that I think we both realized that we were looking for a monogamous relationship and kind of realized very quickly that we're just a boring old straight couple. And I don't mean that a boring old straight couple, but that's the life we wanted. We wanted to be together living. And having said that, we both Sagittarians, not that that has to do with anything, but I've heard people say that two people with the same sign should ever be together. But for us, it's worked beautifully because in some ways we're the same, but in other ways we're completely opposite. And because of that, I can bring him down if he's Tasmanian devil and, and we can kind of control each uh, other. But I think more specifically to your question, our interests are so similar. So for example, Darcy helps me run lines. He helps me rehearse. He helps me learn the parts. With the store, I went to all the buying shows. I helped merchandise, merchandise and, you know, Christmas was my big thing. You know, I'd go in and for 12 hours, you know, Christmas would blow up in the store. We're a good team. So yeah. In you know, event planning, I'm always like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And what do you think about this idea? And we kind of talk it through. We communicate a lot and talk a lot. And we're always in touch, texting, emailing, kind of always in chatter and keeping each other abreast of what's happening. So even when the times are really busy, you're still communicating, you're still in touch so that when you are actually have a chance to sit down and have a cocktail, you're kind of caught up, you know, on what's going on. Yeah. Best friends. Yeah. Yeah. Just best friends. Can't, and I can't, I can't believe it's been 30 years. Impossible. It's absolutely impossible. It sounds like you would go to Sylvan Lake to the beach house and run down the beach in slow motion, hand in hand. No. <laughs> that had to have been the case for the entire 30 years, right? Well, so this is a rule that I set very on in our relationship. My parents had the most tumultuous relationship. They should have divorced after two years and never had kids. And so they're fighting, the fighting, the fighting. And I said to Darcy, I won't fight with you. I'll have disagreements with you, but I won't fight because fighting is not productive. Huh. So if something happens, and I, this is important to me, if something happens, it is immediately discussed. It's like, well, just hang on a sec here. What just happened? What was that? And I remember the first two years of any relationship is a series of negotiations. And I remember as we were going through those two years of negotiations and negotiations were getting tough. I would make him hold my hands. Okay, you have to hold my hands and look at me. Okay, now we're going to talk about this. You know, so I think that's, you know, been the biggest thing. I mean, absolutely, we've hit our horrible we've, patches. We've had and, challenges, some challenges, of course. You know, a lot of things like... The emotional, financial, the whole thing that everything goes through. Absolutely. Everything. But like you do, you dress up and show up. But I will say that Randall still teaches me how to fight. And not that I, by any means, know how to fight still. I mean, Randall still teaches me, you know... Uh, daily, but you know, he's much better at it than I am. Although he says we do communicate, and we certainly do. He's better at not fighting, but just discussing. Uh, well, what challenges? Well, I, call, I call it conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. I I learn from watching my parents what not to do, so I taught myself how to do conflict resolution. So I actually have my business degree from the University of Alberta, and that's really where I got the basis for conflict resolution that I use in our relationship and I use in any relationship, you know. He gives great advice. I do. You ever need advice, he gives great advice. I do give great advice. I should yeah. be a life coach. And again, it's very intrinsic for me. I kind of can see a situation and know what should happen. It's great that you mentioned getting to the point and saying, hey, something's up here. Because like you, I did grow up with fighting that took place and my parents divorced when I was 15, 16 years old. Strange though, because my parents got back together and they've been together ever since. I grew up with my parents fighting, but my sister who was born 15 years after I came around, my only wow. sister, she grew up in a home where there was no fighting because they learned how to discuss and not go to bed angry. And, Interesting. And 
what I can tell you about my relationship with my husband, he doesn't talk very much and I get my way more often than not. And I'm very, <laughs> Good for you. Very lucky that way. <laughs> but I could fight because I learned it, but I choose not to because my attitude is if it's not going to bother me five years from now, I'm not going to spend five minutes worrying and having it roll around in my head. And so I always think about that and go, Here's the reaction. Is it going to bother me five years from now? Take a deep breath, figure things out from there as well. That's good. I may call on you guys for a therapy session in five years from now. (laughs) That works well for me. There's so much to talk about with both of you, but you know, we're coming to the end of our time together. And so we'll have to do part two, part three as we go along. What was the other couple, Pam and Sue? Pam and Karen. Pam and Karen. Karen. You have to beat Pam and Karen. Uh, we'll do next time. We'll do a whole thing on party planning. There's so much that can be talked about, and what I'm thrilled about with this small little podcast I have is meeting people for the first time, like both of you, or talking to people who I know intimately, people who I know their souls. It's just fantastic for people to be able to listen and they go, "Ah, I get it." There's going to be people who are listening and understand Darcy's situation having previously been married to a woman and now recognizing that something's up and that first kiss and then pushing a person back and going, oh, what do you want out of this? But at the same time, probably asking the question to themselves going, I'm kissing somebody. Oh my God, what do I want from this? And needing that time to be able to go, ah, and then go skipping away afterwards in love. To somebody who comes from a conversion therapy type family and religion and being told they're wrong and you overcome it, you find each other. And we grew up in a time where we can never imagine getting married to another person who was like us because it just never happened. So it's an honor to be able to listen to your stories, which again, happens to be our stories. And we're creating the playbook. And so, gentlemen, thank you for this. I treasure this time. Thank you very much for it's having pleasure, us. Yeah. It was a thank real you. honor for us. And we'd love speaking with you. It was yeah. awesome. You're not done yet. I've got a question for both of you. And Uh-oh. this is a question that I always ask at the very end. I mentioned it somewhat with my family and my sister being born when I was 15, 16 years old. And that's when I realized I was gay. Growing up in small, small, small town, Alberta, the only people who I saw who were gay were on the cover of People's Magazine and they would die two days later, like the famous Rock Hudson and Freddie Mercury. I know when when I was going through puberty during that time, I thought I had AIDS because my body was changing and I didn't have the education because I thought I'm gay. Oh my God, the AIDS are going to get me. Long story short. If you had the chance to go back and talk to the 15-year-old Darcy and the 15-year-old Randall, what would you say to him? Be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I know what that I knew at 15, but didn't act, couldn't do it. It was pushed back too far. But be true to yourself. Be who you want to be. Yeah, uh, exactly the same. So you mentioned this quote earlier, and it's a quote from the Bible. Paul said, be all things to all people. And uh, so I was just Mm. trying so hard to figure it out, not just even being gay. Like I was just so insecure about who I was as a person. I didn't know. And I wish I could just, just lost all those shackles, just went, oh, screw it. This is who I am. And it wasn't until later in life when I did that, that people were really drawn to me, which I found so confusing. I'm like, you mean all I had to do my whole life was be myself. That was it. That's exactly what I would say. Oh, and I'd also tell them to go to the gym. Randall, go to the gym. Go to the gym. I I had a size 40 waist when I was 12. Okay. I was a big bone gal from central Alberta, let me tell you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. I'm from the Stetler Botha area. So I I get it. I was born in Stetler. What? I was. That's a few years ago now. Oh, mind you, what? Only 40. Yeah, only, yeah. Let's do the math. I kind of grew up in central Alberta, Stetler, Camrose, Red Deer, and then moved to Edmonton when I was in grade nine, I suppose. So lived my life mostly in Edmonton, but yes, Stetler, Alberta. 
So we know this. We we can look at each other in the eyes and go, yep, I get it. So, you know, and this is maybe a a bit of an aside, but I just kind of want to talk about this just for two seconds. So one of the things I always want to say to people, and I call it my mission statement, is I want people to be inspired to do better, like live their best lives and give them something to aspire to. And having said that, we're talking about Stetler and I was raised on the bad side of North Edmonton. Um, But we get invited to the most amazing parties truly around the world. And I didn't get taught it. It isn't because I'm from Edmonton. What I always want to say to people is just be your most fabulous self and doors will open for you. And what I find really frustrating is so many people believe that, well, I live in X city, therefore I am fabulous. And I'm like, no, you're still wearing Velcro sandals. You're a piece of shit. But it doesn't matter where you live. Your city isn't going to make you fabulous. You can be the most fabulous person in Stetler. Be that most fabulous person in Stetler. And you know what? Doors will open for you. And I would love that to say that to every 15-year-old right now. Just be be your most fabulous self. Grow up, be fabulous, like interesting, engaging. Be your authentic Um, self. And people will be drawn and doors will open for you. It has shocked me. Like, honestly, sometimes we're events in Europe talking to, honestly, counts and principesses. And I'm like, oh, my God, if they knew where I was born and raised, meaning, you know, my parents' home, I have no business being here. But that's not what it's about. People are attracted to people who are interesting, engaging, fabulous. It's an energy. It's an energy. energy. So just everyone out there. Just honestly, be yourself. Be a Gaga. Be a Gaga. (laughs) Be a Gaga and get it by getting out there, being your authentic self. You're going to find your people. And once you have that chosen family, you can do anything. And you'll be amazed once you get your vibe, your energy is in in that circle. You meet your family everywhere. Exponentially. Like not just in your city, like everywhere. And then though those doors start opening for you. And so just tap into that vibe of who you, who is your authentic self and find your tribe and just go with the flow. Let the universe take you. Amen. Now that's a Bible verse I believe in. (laughs) Right? Let's do it. That's Randall and Darcy 3.14 or (laughs) 3.14. Yes, thank you. Exactly. We have a book in the Bible now. Oh, perfect. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. We will talk again soon for everybody listening here tonight. And we'll make sure that we put out all the social medias, websites for Randall and Darcy as we do this. Once again, congratulations. 30 years. Thank you. That's a long time in the gay long world. Time. Yeah, it is too. It, yeah, it is. It's like dog years. It's like dog years. Exactly. <laughs> like we've been together for 120 years. Yeah. The heterosexual straight people listening are like, oh, whatever. But we're like, listen, this is a lifetime. (laughs) A lot of our friends are straight and we've been together longer than all of them. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. It's remarkable. Well, thank you again. Congratulations. Thank you you for sharing. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, make sure you go back and listen to previous episodes of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. I look forward to you coming back with you again. Until next week, everyone, I'm reminding you to be good and always text when you get home. Uh, Bye for now. Bye.